Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Elon Musk has been called a visionary and a genius, but he's also been called erratic. Watch how he responds to our question about his recent settlement with the Securities and Exchange Commission. I guess uh, we might make some mistakes. Who knows? (laughs) Are you serious? No, he's perfect. (laughs) Look at you. I, 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 I want to be clear. I do not respect the SEC. I do not respect them. Okay, so you're ready to do the next part? We're have the federal government, there. through the National Institutes of Health, has launched the most ambitious study of adolescent brain development ever attempted. Here you can see that there are differences in the patterns. In part, scientists are trying to understand what no one currently does, how all that screen time impacts the physical structure of your kids' brains, as well as their emotional development and mental health. Mm-hmm. In many ways, the concern that investigators like I have is that we're sort of in the midst of a natural kind of uncontrolled experiment on the next generation of children. As a 12-year-old in Virginia, Ryan Speedo Green was the author of an impressive rap sheet. On my first day of class, uh, I walked in. There's this little five-foot-one Caucasian curly blonde-haired lady, and uh, I sit in my chair and I throw my desk at her. When he couldn't be contained there, he was sent to a juvenile lockup. Now, as a man, tragedy has become the dominant theme in his life, but in a way that no one could have imagined. I'm Steve Proft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. 
Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. Elon Musk, the CEO of the electric car company Tesla, has been called a genius, a visionary. But this year he got less notice for his brilliance than his behavior, with stories about self-inflicted wounds like capricious tweeting and public pot smoking. The 47-year-old billionaire has said 2018 has been excruciating, quote, the most painful year of my career. When he joined as co-founder of the company 14 years ago, he had no experience in the auto industry. He was guided by a dream to build cars that don't harm the environment in an effort to save the planet. But this year, Musk had to save his company. Tesla had been losing money for nearly its entire existence. Its debt is in the billions, and it was bleeding cash. Everything was riding on its ability to mass-produce its new sedan, the Model 3, an affordable so-called everyman car. But over the summer, when Elon Musk was in production hell, as he called it, working round the clock to make enough Model 3s to show a profit, he began acting, well, weird. There are people who, who say that the company cannot survive without you. And I don't think that's true, yeah. there are people who say the company cannot survive with you. Ha <laughs> ha, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> they say it because of the way you acted over the summer, <laughs> yeah. doing things that seemed impulsive, un-CEO-ish. Uh, well, first of all, I, 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 I am somewhat impulsive, and uh, I don't really want to try to adhere to some... Uh, CEO template. Well, he certainly accomplished that, especially this past year when he began picking needless fights on social media. He called a diver of the Thai cave rescue a pedo, as in pedophile. He sold 20,000 flamethrowers online and uh, smoked weed now. during a podcast. What about the pot? Uh, I do not smoke pot. Uh, as anyone who watched that podcast could tell, I have no idea how to smoke pot or anything. I don't know how to smoke anything, honestly. Here are some of the words written about you. Yeah, sure. Not, not the whole <laughs> just time. Just a lot of words. <laughs> over this summer. Um, erratic, unstable, reckless, operatic. Operatic. Uh, it's not bad, actually. I kind of like that one. I'm just being me. Uh, I mean, I certainly under insane stress and crazy, crazy hours, but the system would have failed. If I, if I was truly erratic. You tweet a lot. I, I use my tweets to express myself. <laughs> Some people oh use God. their hair. I use Twitter. <laughs> well, but you use your tweeting to, to kind of get back at critics. Rarely. You, have, you kind of have little wars with the press. Twitter is a war zone. If somebody's going to jump in the war zone, it's like, okay, you're in the arena. 
Let's go. His war zone tweeting drew fire when out of the blue in August he tweeted, quote, am considering taking Tesla private at 420, funding secured. The SEC disputed that claim and charged him with securities fraud. The case was settled with Musk agreeing that his communications relating to the company, including Twitter, would be overseen by his board. Have you had any of your tweets censored since the settlement? No. None. Does someone have to read them before they go out? No. So your tweets are not supervised? The, the, the only tweets that would have to be, say, um, reviewed would be if, if a tweet had a probability of uh, causing a movement in the stock. And that's it? Yeah, I mean, otherwise it's, uh, hello, First Amendment. It's pretty, like, freedom of speech is fundamental. But, but how do they know if it's going to move the market if they're not reading all of them before you send them? Well, I guess uh, we might make some mistakes. Who knows? <laughs> Are you serious? No, he's perfect. <laughs> Look at you. No, I, 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 I want to I be clear. I do not respect the SEC. I do not respect them. But, but you're abiding by the settlement, aren't you? Because I respect the justice system. Abiding also meant he had to relinquish his position as chairman of the Tesla board. He's been replaced by board member Robin Denholm. Did you handpick her? Yes. The impression was that she was put in to kind of watch over you. Yeah, I mean, that's not realistic. I mean, Like a largest, babysitter. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not realistic in the sense that I am the largest shareholder in the company, um, and I can just call for a shareholder vote and get anything done that I, that I want. So do you think you'll want to go back to, be, uh, to being chair? No, I, I, I don't think. I, I actually just prefer to have no titles at all. With or without titles, there's something larger than life about Elon Musk. He has a cult following. One of Silicon Valley's most successful and versatile entrepreneurs, he has, beyond cars, built powerful rockets with reusable boosters. This one launched a record 64 satellites into orbit. He's digging a tunnel deep underground to deal with traffic congestion. And in each case, he started a company. Did you have a lot of money? Did your family give you a lot of money to start all of this? No. What, you grew up in South Africa? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I left when I was 17 by myself. I had, had a backpack of clothes and a suitcase of books, and that's it. Did you have a happy childhood? No, it's terrible. Are you serious? Yes. Why was it terrible? <laughs> it was very violent. It was not a happy childhood. I do know that you were bullied at school and had a difficult... I was almost beaten to death, if you'd call that bullied. And he's described his father as emotionally abusive. My father has serious issues. Um, okay, well, so you didn't have a happy childhood. No. It's no surprise, then, that as an adult, he's a fighter determined to succeed and prove everyone wrong, as when he waged a battle this year to avoid Tesla's bankruptcy by boosting production of its newest electric car, the Model 3. At the factory in Fremont, California, he complained bitterly about all the naysayers and critics who were gunning for his failure. There's been relentless criticism, relentless and outrageous and unfair. 
because what actually happened here was an incredible American success story. All these people worked their ass off day and night to make it happen, and they believed in the dream. And that's the story that really should be told. The story is how he set and met the production target of 5,000 Model 3s a week and made Tesla profitable. But the effort nearly bankrupted the company. If you're trying to step up to something which is you know, a, a thousand percent more than any other program that you've ever done, it's necessarily, you, you, you have to bet the company. There's no option. So in other words, if you hadn't met it, you would have died. It was, it was life or death. We were losing 50, sometimes $100 million a week. Uh, we're running out of money. You were losing $100 million a week. Yeah. That's scary. His two assembly lines weren't churning out cars fast enough. Failure was imminent until his light bulb moment. Create a third assembly line in a big tent in the Tesla parking lot. This, this whole thing that you see here uh, was a pretty mir miraculous effort by the team to create a general assembly line out of nothing in three weeks. This went up in three weeks? Yeah. So those, you know, betting against the company were, were right by all conventional standards that we would fail, but they just did not count on this unconventional situation of creating a, an assembly line in the parking lot in a tent. And this last-minute push. It increased our output by 50%. Musk was a champion of automation, so his original assembly lines were full of robots. But the robots kept breaking down. Walk along this new line in the tent, and all you see are, well, humans. He tweeted, excessive automation at Tesla was a mistake. To be precise, my mistake. Humans are underrated. People are way better at dealing with un unexpected circumstances than robots, uh, yeah, yeah. as you know. Yeah. He pushed his workers hard to meet the 5,000 a week deadline, but he pushed himself even harder out on the factory floor day and night, troubleshooting and fixing work line slowdowns. I think it was like literally one week where I actually worked 120 hours and just didn't leave the factory. I didn't even go outside. I want to make it clear to the team, they needed to see that uh, however hard it was for them, I would make it worse for me. And it paid off. Tesla announced in October it was profitable for the first time in years. The Model 3 is all electric, can go from zero to 60 in three seconds, and drive over 300 miles on a single battery charge. Musk wanted to show us the autopilot feature. The car drives itself. But right now you're driving, right now. Uh, yeah. I, but, but now I'm not. Now you're not driving at I'm all. Not doing anything. Wow. No hands, no feet. You feel safe? Yeah. And just as I got used to this. It's, now I'm not. It's changing lanes by itself. <gasps> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, pretty wild. Wow. Another thing that was supposed to be a wow was the price, just thirty-five thousand dollars. That was a goal not met. It costs around 49000 and if you customize it, which many customers do, you can quickly reach 60000 It's not a car for the everyman, which is what you set out to build. Uh, it's getting there. We're, we're not that far from being able to produce the $35,000 car, and that'll be ready in probably five or six months. All right, here you go. You've already set a new deadline, right? Five or six months. No, that's, just, that's just my guess. Okay. It's, it's not like some promise... 
uh, or, or so help me God and strike me dead. You are notorious <laughs> for setting, you know, these deadlines for yourself that no one thinks you can meet and you often don't meet. And I'm just wondering why you do that. Well, I mean, punctuality is not my strong suit. Um, I think, uh, well, why would people think that, the, <laughs> that if I've been late on all the other models that I'd be suddenly on time with, with this one? Yeah. <laughs> your, your naysayers say that you lie. That's the way they interpret it. It, it, people should not ascribe to malice that which can easily be explained by stupidity. Um, so, <laughs> so it's like just because I'm like dumb at, at predicting dates does not mean I'm uh, untruthful. I don't know. I've, we've, I've never made a mass-produced car. How am I supposed to know with precision when it's going to get done? He's also had to deal with complaints about conditions inside Tesla's factories. There are charges of unreported injuries, excessive hours, abusive conditions. Well, it's important to emphasize that there's been an aggressive campaign by the UAW to absolutely uh, attack Tesla with a, a load of nonsense um, in, in order to uh, try to unionize the company. So you uh, think, think they drummed up these charges? Yes, yeah, it's, it's these are outer nonsense. Well, there are several investigations uh, by the press and by regulators in California about injuries on the job, breathing toxic fumes, stress injuries, over a hundred ambulance calls. Uh, I don't think that's correct. Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, I was literally living in the factory. Um, if, these, if, if there's like toxic fumes, I'm breathing them. Okay. But there have been other concerns. A string of senior managers and engineers left this year. The company is still billions in debt. And yet Tesla is expanding, adding to its workforce, while rival General Motors announced it's planning to lay off some 14,000 employees and idle plants. Would you want to buy some of those plants, those factories, that they're closing down? You're shaking your head yes? It's possible that we would be interested if we were going to sell a plant or, or not use it, that we would take it over. GM also announced that it will double its investment into developing electric cars. And Elon Musk is celebrating. Why do you want the competition? The, the, the whole point of Tesla is to accelerate the, the advent of electric vehicles and, and sustainable transport. So if We're trying to help the environment. We think it's a most serious problem that humanity faces. I, I'm not sure if you know, but we, we, we open sourced our patents, so anyone who wants to use our patents can use them for free. Your patents are open source? Yeah. So if somebody comes and makes a better electric car that, than, than Tesla, um, and, and it's, it's so much better than ours that we can't sell our cars and, and we go bankrupt, I still think that's a good thing for the world. And you'll sleep at night? Yeah, because somebody's making some pretty great cars. Um, If you have kids and wonder if all that time they spend on their smartphones endlessly scrolling, snapping, and texting is affecting their brains, you might want to put down your own phone and pay attention. The federal government, through the National Institutes of Health, has launched the most ambitious study of adolescent brain development ever attempted. In part, scientists are trying to understand what no one currently does, how all that screen time impacts the physical structure of your kids' brains, as well as their emotional development and mental health. Let me know when you're ready. At 21 sites across the country, scientists have begun interviewing 9- and 10-year-olds and scanning their brains. 
They'll follow more than 11,000 kids for a decade and spend $300 million doing it. It's quite an investment. Dr. Gaia Dowling of the National Institutes of Health gave us a glimpse of what they've learned so far. The focus when we first started talking about doing this study was tobacco, marijuana, all drugs. The screen time component really came into play because we were wondering what is the impact? I mean, clearly kids spend so much time on screens. The first wave of data from brain scans of 4,500 participants is in, and it has Dr. Dowling of the NIH and other scientists intrigued. Here you can see that there are differences in the patterns. The MRIs found significant differences in the brains of some kids who use smartphones, tablets, and video games more than seven hours a day. What we can say is that this is what the brains look like of kids who spend a lot of time on screens, and it's not just one pattern. That's fascinating. It's very fascinating. The colors show differences in the 9- and 10-year-olds' brains. The red color represents premature thinning of the cortex. That's the wrinkly outermost layer of the brain that processes information from the five senses. What does a thinning of the cortex mean? That's typically thought to be a maturational process. So mm -hmm. what we would expect to see later is happening a little bit earlier. Should parents be concerned by that? We don't know if it's being caused by the screen time. We don't know yet if it's a bad thing. It won't be until we follow them over time that we will see if there are outcomes that are associated with the, the differences that we're seeing in this single snapshot. The interviews and data from the NIH study have already revealed something else. Kids who spend more than two hours a day on screens got lower scores on thinking and language tests. When the study is complete, is it possible that a researcher will be able to say whether or not screen time is actually addictive? We hope so. We'll be able to see not only how much time are they spending, how they perceive it impacting them, but also what are some of the outcomes. And that will get at the question of whether there's addiction or not. When will you have the answers that you're searching for? Some questions we'll be able to answer in a few years, but some of the really interesting questions about these long-term outcomes, we're going to have to wait a while because they need to happen. That delay leaves researchers who study technology's impact on very small children anxious. In many ways, the concern that investigators like I have is that we're sort of in the midst of a natural, kind of uncontrolled experiment on the next generation of children. Dr. Dimitri Christakis at Seattle Children's Hospital was the lead author of the American Academy of Pediatrics' most recent guidelines for screen time. They now recommend parents avoid digital media use, except video chatting, in children younger than 18 to 24 months. So what we do know about babies playing with iPads is that they don't transfer what they learn from the iPad to the real world, which is to say that if you give a child an app where they play with virtual Legos, virtual blocks, and stack them, and then put real blocks in front of them, they start all over. If they try to do it in real life, it's as if they've never done it before. Exactly. They don't so it's not a transferable the, They skill. don't transfer the knowledge from two dimensions to three. Dr. Christakis is one of the few scientists who've already done experiments on the influence screens have on children under the age of two. It's a critical period for human brain development. If you're concerned about your teenager being addicted to their iPhone, your infant is much more vulnerable and using the exact same device. Your infant is more vulnerable because why? Because the experience of making something happen is so much more gratifying to them.
In a small pilot study that Dr. Christakis conducted on 15 children, researchers gave toddlers three toys. First, a plastic guitar, then an iPad that played musical notes, and finally an iPad with an app that rewarded the kids with lights, colors, and sounds. So at a very specific time, a research assistant will ask the child to give what they're playing with back. To give it to the research to assistant. To give it to the research assistant. Give it to me. Sixty-six percent of the time, with a traditional toy, the child will do just that. With the iPad that simulates that, they give it back almost with the same frequency. Thank you. But with the iPad app that when they push on it, it does all kinds of things, they're much less likely to give it back. With the more interactive iPad app, the percentage of kids willing to hand it back to the researcher dropped from 60% to 45%. Give it to me. Yeah. It's that much more engaging. It's that much more engaging. And that's what we find in the laboratory. <laughs> it's engaging by design, as Tristan Harris told us in a story we reported more than a year ago. There's a whole playbook of techniques that get used to get you using the product for as long as possible. Harris is a former Google manager who was one of the first Silicon Valley insiders to publicly acknowledge that phones and apps are being designed to capture and keep kids' attention. This is about the war for attention and where that's taking society and where that's taking technology. You know, it's one thing for adults. I mean, for kids, this is a whole other thing. That's where this gets particularly sensitive, is developmentally, do we want this war for attention to be affecting our children? Do you think parents understand the complexities of what their kids are dealing with? No, and I think this is really important um, because there's a narrative that, oh, I guess they're just doing this like we used to gossip on the phone. But what this misses is that your telephone in the 1970s didn't have a thousand engineers on the other side of the telephone who were redesigning it to work with other telephones and then updating the way your telephone worked every day to be more and more persuasive. Until recently, it was impossible to see what happens inside a young brain when a person is focused on a mobile device. But now, scientists at the University of California, San Diego, have hacked that problem. How often do you have young people come in for the MRIs? So as often as we possibly can. Dr. Kara Baggett is an investigator on that $300 million NIH study. Her team is scanning teenagers' brains as they follow Instagram, the most popular social media app. When we met 18-year-old Roxy Shimp, she was about to participate in Dr. Baggett's study. How much time do you actually spend on screens? I check my phone pretty regularly, I'd say. What's pretty regularly? Uh, every at least 10 to 20 minutes. Is that a conservative estimate? Probably. She can't take her phone into the MRI because of the powerful magnets in the machine. So a mirror has been placed above her face to allow her to look across the room at a movie screen displaying images from her Instagram account. This way, Dr. Baggett can see exactly which parts of the brain's reward system are most active while using social media. So you can actually see a part of the brain light up when you're feeling good? Yes, from, in the scanner. In the scanner? Yeah. Based on her data and the results from other studies, Dr. Baggett is among scientists who believe screen time stimulates the release of the brain chemical dopamine which has a pivotal role in cravings and desire. So you're more likely to act impulsively um, and use social media compulsively instead of, like, checking yourself. You want to keep on it to keep getting... The good feelings. 
Teenagers now spend on average four and a half hours a day on their phones. All that time has resulted in a fundamental shift in how a generation of American kids acts and thinks. When smartphones went from being something only a few people had to something the majority of people had, it had this really big effect on how teens related to each other. Jean Twenge is a psychology professor at San Diego State University. She spent five years combing through four large national surveys of 11 million young people since the 1960s. She discovered sudden changes in the behavior and mental health of teens born in 1995 and later, a generation that she calls iGen. And they're the first generation to spend their entire adolescence with smartphones. So a lot of them can't remember a time before smartphones existed. There have been generational shifts before in the past, haven't there? Certainly. Um, this one's much more sudden and pronounced than most of the others. The iPhone was introduced in 2007. Smartphones gained widespread usage among young people by 2012. Jean Twenge says she was startled to find that in the four years that followed, the percentage of teens who reported drinking or having sex fell. But the percentage who said they were lonely or depressed spiked. It's possible other factors may have played a role, but Twenge says she wasn't able to identify any that correlated as closely as the growing popularity of the smartphone and social media. It's not just the loneliness and depression from these surveys. It's also that um, ER visits for self-harm, like cutting, have tripled among girls aged 10 to 14. What are teens doing on their phones that, that could be connected to depression? It could be anything. There's, there's kind of two different schools of thought on this, that it's the specific things that teens are doing on their phones that's the problem, or it could be just the sheer amount of time that they're spending on their phones that's the problem. Finding definitive answers about social media's influence on mental health can be a frustrating exercise. 81% of teens in a new national survey by the Pew Research Center said they feel more connected to their friends and associated social media use with feeling included. But in a month-long experiment at the University of Pennsylvania, college students who limited themselves to just 30 minutes a day on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat reported significant decreases in loneliness and depression. A lot of times with these technological shifts, is these things are adopted because they're so wonderful and convenient, and we don't realize until later the possible consequences. And I think, fortunately, in the last year or so, there's been more discussion about how can we manage the use of our devices. Facebook and Instagram have introduced settings to allow users to monitor app use. And Apple, the company that started the smartphone revolution, has built a new feature for parents to set time restrictions on apps. Tech companies say there are tools out there that they have supplied and that they're doing their part. A lot of parents, probably the majority of parents I talk to, don't even realize those tools are available. And I wish they'd happened five years ago instead of now, but better late than never. For its part, the National Institutes of Health has just finished enrolling the 11,000 kids for its landmark brain study. Early next year, the data will be made available to any researcher around the world investigating the effect of a device that's become the most dominant technological presence in young lives. Smartphones are great things. They're a wonderful piece of technology. They allow us to find our way around and look up the weather and do all that kinds of stuff. And if you do that for half an hour or an hour a day, fine, no problem. Then you're using it for what it's good for. But you have to use it for what it's good for and then put it down. I mean, it should be a tool that you use, not a tool that uses you.
As a 12-year-old in Virginia, Ryan Speedo Green was the author of an impressive rap sheet. He was so violent, he was banished to a class for delinquents, and when he couldn't be contained there, he was sent to a juvenile lockup. Those who knew the boy with the unusual name could see that the child was writing a tragedy. Now, as a man, tragedy has become the dominant theme in his life, but in a way that no one could have imagined. The high priest in the temple of the Metropolitan Opera in New York is Ryan Speedo Green, starring in Rossini's Semiramide. Green blessed the hall with a voice that reaches from bass to baritone. At age 32, he's a member of the Vienna State Opera and performs on stages of the world in German, French, English, and Italian. Some call his sound a gift, but that sells short the life of struggle and the sacrifices of others that lifted him to the high altar of success. I lived in a trailer park, and then I lived in a, another low-income housing where there, there was a crack house next to me that produced drugs for the city. Life at home with your mother and your older brother? Um, it was tough. You know, I had, uh, I had a lot of issues and um, a lot of anger problems. It was a, a lot of explosions of anger, frustration um, that was going on at the time. Explosions of anger were hard for us to picture in the genial man we met at the Met. But 20 years before, Green and his brother were being raised by an abusive mother, and he returned that abuse. Too violent for fourth grade, he was banished to that class for delinquents. My first day of class, uh, I walked in, and um, there's this little five-foot-one um, Caucasian, curly blonde-haired lady, and uh, I sit in my chair, and I throw my desk at her, and I tell her I will not be taught by a white woman. And instead of kicking me out of the class, like most teachers would do, and you'd be justified in doing so, she instead took away my chair and said I could learn from the floor. And when I'm ready to not throw my, no th not throw my desk at someone, I could have my desk and my chair back. That was teacher Elizabeth Hughes. That's Green standing next to her. Why would Mrs. Hughes figure you for somebody who had a future? Um, I don't think it was specific to me. I believe she thought this way about every student that she worked with. Instead of sending me home and throwing down the hammer, the anvil on, on, the, on judgment, instead she asked me, is everything okay at home? What's wrong with you? Why are you so angry? School became a haven, but the fights at home continued, and one day Speedo Green pulled a knife and threatened his mother and brother. And when the police came to, uh, to my home because they were called, um, they didn't feel that it was safe for me to be around my family, and then they took me to uh, juvenile detention. Walked down three flights of stairs in shackles and handcuffs into the back of a police car and, um, and drove uh, about three and a half, four hours to, to, uh, to where the juvenile detention facility was. And I just remember, you know, feeling alone. He was locked up for two months. The only sound that penetrated the frightening walls was Mrs. Hughes from fourth grade. And I remember getting a phone call, and she told me that don't let this moment define you. This doesn't define you. 
you can be better, you can do better. She called you yeah, in ju juvenile, juvenile detention. Yes, she found out that I was there and called, and that was one of my biggest outbursts because I felt so ashamed and so angry at myself uh, for letting her down that I had one of my biggest outbursts at the juvenile detention facility where they ended up putting me in solitary confinement. His outbursts put him in solitary again and again. He was 12 years old. And when the door to the isolation cell closed for the first time? I remember just banging on the door and screaming, looking for anybody and, and for anything that can connect you to the outside world. And you can hear everything just all over so loud. You know, and, and, it, and imagine a child, just the energy of a child, the anger of a child screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming until it gets so unbearable you just fall on your knees and cry, start crying. And you thought what? Being in this cell was the lowest point of my entire life. And actually, when I got out of here, that was my motivation to, to never end up in a place like this. No one was listening to the voice locked in solitary, except for the few who would save his life. Mrs. Hughes, who was too camera shy for an interview, and in detention, Priscilla Pinheiro Jenkins. This kid was small, angry, full of just hate. This eloquent man that's sitting here next to me was not who I first met. Every other word was foul. Every other word was negative. There was nothing positive coming out of him. Pinheiro Jenkins was a caseworker in the detention center. I called her like awful names like an Hawaiian bitch or something mm -hmm. like this. And I remember that she, despite all of my anger, despite all of my outbursts, she was still nice to me. I still remember that there was a person who was nice to me, a person who showed me kindness. And that's, that's an amazing feeling to see that in darkness. This kid called you a Hawaiian bitch. Why didn't you just say, hey, I don't care what happens to you? He's a child. He's not, it's not at me. And you just can't say no to someone and shut them out when you know they're desperate to figure out what is love? Who will love me? Who will care for me? Will you stand by me even if I'm cussing you out? Well, yes. He just had to know that somebody gave a damn. Exactly, and was listening. That is how the world came to listen. His life was saved by a few compassionate adults, Mrs. Hughes, Priscilla Pinheiro Jenkins, and a psychiatrist provided by the state of Virginia. Coming out of detention, Green got a fresh start. His family moved to a new town with a new school and new friends. And I started realizing that those kids were involved with after-school activities, from Latin club that I joined, to chorus that I joined, to football that I joined. And so I had no time to argue with my mom because I was thinking about studying for a Latin quiz bowl or I was uh, in my room playing with my keyboard trying to memorize music for my chorus uh, concert the next day. Chorus had been suggested by Green's football coach who thought it would be easy. It wasn't. But his singing improved so much that he was accepted into Virginia's prestigious Governor's School of the Arts. Then at the age of 15, a field trip brought him here to New York City and the Metropolitan Opera. It was the opera Carmen with Denise Graves, as, who was the title role. At that point in my life, I thought opera was like, you know, for uh, white people. And 
the lead character, the title role, was a person who looked like me, was a person of color. It completely just shattered all my, all my uh, preconceptions of what I thought opera was. Denise Graves seduced a soldier on stage and Speedo in the audience. I fell in love with opera that day. And I left the, the Metropolitan Opera and told Robert Brown, who was my voice teacher, that I know what I want to do with my life. I want to sing at the Metropolitan Opera. And he, instead of, you know, you know, saying, no, you can't do that, or like, maybe you should aim a little lower, or like, you know, maybe, maybe you know, instead of saying all these ifs and ands and buts, he told me a list of many things that I had to do, including graduating high school, going to college for music, singing in foreign languages. I mean, dozens of things that I had to do before I even could be able to audition for the Met. He checked off the entire list, including bachelor's and master's degrees in music. At the age of 24, he entered a Metropolitan Opera competition for young singers, and he beat more than a thousand other contestants. First time I saw you perform, you know what I wanted to know? What did you want to know? Where the heck does Speedo come from? <laughs> well, uh... My father was an amateur bodybuilder, and he wanted to name me after himself. Um, but my mother was like, no, he can't be named Cecil. So <laughs> he named me Speedo after his favorite bathing suit, which is also happens to be his middle name. Uh, and that's how I got the name Speedo. What role has being black meant in all of this? It's been good and bad. You know, in the beginning of my career, um, it's the thing that pushed me forward a lot to break people's stereotypes. I wanted for people to think of me as an opera singer, not a black opera singer. And then I'll come out of this performance of completely German music, and there will be an older Caucasian person who will come up to me and be like, I would love to hear you sing Old Man River. I get weary. Old Man River is the showstopper from Showboat, made famous by Paul Robeson. Every time I sing, there's going to be someone in the audience who's going to see me as Joe in Showboat, instead of seeing me as Ryan Speedle Green, the bass baritone classical music opera singer. The irony of it is this, this guy Joe is singing this piece about the hardships of, of post-slavery and, and about the hardships that Caucasian people are causing him. Yet, the people who love this song the most are Caucasian people. Green invited us backstage at the Met for his warm-up routine, a typical set of exercises to loosen his cords and his lips for precise diction. There are no microphones in opera, so his voice has to fire over a 60-piece orchestra and ricochet off the back of the hall. The dimensions of his voice tend to place him in particular roles. I'm the voice of the father. I'm the voice of the person you hear before you want to go to bed. You know, I'm the voice, uh, you know, of sometimes of gods, of demons. Of, of, of the, the guy who kills a tenor, you know. <laughs> Green 
Green's audience often includes Elizabeth Hughes and his mother, with whom he's reconciled. He travels with his new wife and their new son. Because he's only 32 years old, Green's bass baritone voice will continue to mature until this baby is about 10 years old. The voice we hear today is in its infancy. If you could speak to that kid sitting alone in solitary, what would you tell him? I would tell him there, there, there are trees and sun beyond his walls. And that, uh, don't let this moment define you. I would, in the words of uh, Elizabeth Hughes, don't let this moment define you. This is not the end. This is only a moment in time. And someday, it'll get better. Someday, things will get brighter. Speedo Green performs in a world of demons and gods, telling stories in which a single hero can change lives. The plots, of course, are fanciful, except to a man whose own life resonates on a stage of impossible dreams. In the mail this week, viewers' comments on Paradise Lost, our story about California's campfire and the firefighters and other first responders who risk their lives battling the wildfire. Congress should award a medal to the brave bulldozer driver in Paradise who drove into the fire to save so many lives. Haunting segment. Bill Whitaker, what a gem. And there was this from a viewer who lives just eight miles from the tragedy. Please come back to interview these people about how they're going to rebuild their lives. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com.